good to sing the praises of our God. He's worthy of all of our praise and devotion. And He's worthy not just in this hour. He's worthy in every moment. Life is worship. And we pray that a gathering like this one would equip you to live every moment for His glory. But what if I told you that without even knowing it, Christians sometimes participate in society in ways that sanction the idolatry and immorality pervading it. Christians sometimes participate in society in ways that sanction the idolatry and immorality pervading it. A fish scarcely discerns that it's in water, and sometimes Christians can scarcely discern their participation in idolatry and immorality. When it comes to things like hoping in a political ideology, or pursuing financial security at all costs, or sacrificing the family at the altar of career, or consuming image bearers for sexual gratification, or risking babies' lives to control our own. It's It's sometimes hard to tell the church apart from the world. The Holy Spirit refuses to let the church live in such a manner. The new life in Christ abandons the old ways of sin. And today's passage touches on this as the Gentiles receive a letter from their Jewish brothers. We pick it up in verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, And from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching 
the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. It is holy and true, and we pray that we would listen to it with humility and self-denial, and that you would conform us to the image of your Son through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last time we looked at Acts 15, I said it had two parts that answered two big questions. Uh, The first question we answered, what's required to enter the kingdom of God? Answer, we enter the kingdom of God by faith in Christ alone. The covenant people are no longer marked by circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, but by faith in the risen Jesus. Well, what then did that mean for Gentiles? If Gentile believers didn't have to keep the law of Moses, well, then how were they to live? And that leads us to the second question. How does one live in the kingdom of God? And the answer comes in the form of a short letter circulated to the Gentile churches. But to understand it, I want to do so under five headings. First, I want to look at the letter's context. The letter's context. I conflated two groups last time that I want to distinguish this time, and I want to thank Joel for bringing this to my uh, attention. But I viewed the group of men in verse 1 to be identical to the group in verse 5. But there's a few clues that reveal they're likely different groups. Uh, The group in verse 1 is kind of vaguely identified as some who came down from Judea. But the group in verse 5 is specifically identified as some believers. They're, They're from the faction of the Pharisees. But they're in the church and they are believers. Also, the group in verse 1 is saying that circumcision and keeping the law of Moses are necessary for salvation. But if you notice in verse 5 of of chapter 15, that that language disappears with the group. They seem to be asking a little bit different question, whether it's necessary for Gentiles to keep the law once they're in. Also, the group in verse 5 eventually agrees with the decision of the apostles on the basis of salvation by faith alone. And then they unite with the whole church, down in verse uh, 22, they unite with the whole church uh, in separating themselves from the group in verse 1. In fact, uh, look at verse 24. Whereas uh, we get the same group that was mentioned in verse 1, but they're then described in this way. We have heard that, so that believing faction of the Pharisees that's now in the church would have been saying this with the whole church. We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. The same language appears in 1 John 2.19 to speak about false teachers or antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So what we have is kind of a twofold problem. 
and both relate to what bearing the law of Moses has on Gentiles. One problem is with outsiders, saying you must keep the law to enter God's kingdom. It's legalism with a capital L. The other problem is with believing insiders who are really wrestling with whether the Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses once they're in God's kingdom. So we might call it legalism with a lowercase l. The apostles and elders care for the church by answering both of these questions. Both of these problems. They protect the church by distancing themselves from the false gospel of the outsider. That's primarily what we covered last time. Salvation by faith alone. Then they also nurture the insiders by clarifying whether Gentile believers have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And the answer is an emphatic no. So Gentiles in Christ don't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. That was James's conclusion in verse 19. My judgment is that we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, he says. Trouble them with what? Circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. Well, what does that mean? You can see the church, this Jewish church wrestling with this question. If they don't have to keep the law of Moses, does that mean they can just do whatever they want? What's going to regulate the way they live if Moses is out? Well, the answer is the apostles' instructions. The apostles' authoritative instructions regulate the church directly. We can see this in that the law of Moses commanded circumcision, but here we have the apostles telling them, you don't have to be circumcised. It's not necessary. But James does go on to say that some other things are necessary. So his instructions are regulating the church. And that leads to our next heading. The letter's command. The letter's command. James says this in verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the pollution of idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, and then it's repeated in in verse 29 with slight nuance and a, a little bit of a different word order. How should we understand these requirements? Why these four? Well, interpretations vary. The first interpretation we might call the ethical interpretation. They're just an abstract of ethical principles, at least one of which stems from the covenant with Noah back in Genesis 9, verse 4. It says, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, it's blood. Now, the command in Genesis 9-4 does precede the Mosaic Covenant. And it also, more generally, uh, applies to all humanity across all time. Perhaps there's some merit to this observation. But I think it fails to explain the other prohibitions at the same time, like idolatry and sexual immorality. Far more popular is the societal interpretation. 
Okay, so these requirements kind of, James is kind of formulating a a compromise of sorts uh, to promote unity, table fellowship between Jews and, and Gentiles. And advocates of this view usually approach it from two different angles. Okay, some see the laws in Leviticus 17 and 18 in particular as the primary source here. And the idea would be that uh, Gentiles are not obligated to keep the law of Moses, but they should at least keep these parts of the law. That would enable them to to fellowship with, with, with Jews, especially since the law is read so often, verse 21. But... The linguistic connections to, between chapter 15 here and Leviticus 17 are minimal. The requirements in Acts 15 are never grounded in the, in the law of Moses itself, but in the apostles and the Spirit's instructions. And it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense about why these laws were chosen over others in the law of, of Moses. Okay? And according to verses 10 and 11 and verse 19, the whole point has been not to force the, the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. Now, others within this societal in, interpretation see the requirements as created for a, a specific situation. It's, it's not universal. It's just we've got some issues in Antioch and Syria and, and Cilicia and we need to apply it here. They reflect things that are particularly offensive to Jews. Well, I don't buy this either. Uh, you, you might be able to make a case, like with the, the food laws, and, uh, uh, food offered to idols and the blood and so forth. You might be able to make a case there. But the requirements here extend beyond what might offend Jews, ceremonially speaking. Okay, They also include basic morality, like avoiding sexual immorality. And that applies universally to everybody. It, it, it isn't just a matter of Jewish sensitivities. The best interpretation, I find, is the cultic interpretation. The cultic interpretation. These, these requirements, you need to read them like together, as, as one piece. They all hang together as something, uh, as, as one. And they point to the pagan practices that are associated with the idolatry of, of the day. Okay, all four items are, practice, are practices associated with the paganism of their day. And in particular, he's talking about idolatry and the food and the feasts that are associated with the idolatry and sexual immorality. Th- those two things. Both of these things saturated the Gentile culture. I mean, temple prostitution was, was rampant. In the culture, it was nothing for the guys to stop home from their on their way home from work and sleep with a temple prostitute. Um, most most of the meat it, that was sold in their in their markets places, right? Go down to the H E B and all the meat's been sacrificed to an idol of, of some sort. Idols were everywhere. Entrances to homes. They influenced the court systems and businesses uh, who had their their idols. The idol makers controlled large swaths of of the economy. You got the silversmith working down the street and whatnot. And so they really needed to watch how they lived and interacted in this kind of culture now that they're believers in Christ. 
So this is what I take going on here by his instructions. This interpretation agrees with Luke's building polemic in, 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 in Acts uh, against idolatry. Uh, the turning of the Gentiles, you see that there in verse, uh, verse 19. It says that those are the Gentiles who, who turned to God. Uh, that matches Paul's language in chapter 14, verse 15. Uh, where he's talking about Gentiles turning from their idols to God. As well as in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Also, thematically, this view fits some of Paul's letters and the book of Revelation where idolatry, the food associated with it, and sexual immorality all appear together in one place. So you, you get this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, uh, and uh, 19 and 22. And then you also get it in, uh, very explicitly in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 20. Revelation 2, verse 14 and 20. So, what is, what is it saying here? What, what's going on here? Well, it, it means that even though Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved, even though the law of Moses doesn't regulate their covenant relationship with God, they must still renounce their old pagan ways. The new covenant in Christ, as well, forbids any association with idolatry and sexual immorality. What about verse 21, you might ask? For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, verse 21 is simply pointing out the reason for delivering the circular letter to the Gentile churches. The idea is that, hey, these Gentiles are going to keep running into this issue since Moses is read everywhere all the time. So let's write a letter saying, hey, don't worry about circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, but that doesn't mean you can just keep about your life as normal. No, you renounce your pagan ways, Jesus is risen, and you're called by his name. Okay, so don't don't miss this here. Uh, These aren't just bare commands. These are commands that are rooted in the gospel of grace, which you just sang about a while ago. Right? There's, there's a, a reason the therefore is in verse 19. It's linking it to what has been talked about by Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James. It's linking it to the grace of God already explained in the text above. Why abstain from idolatry and sexual immorality and anything else that may give the appearance of sanctioning it? Why? Well, for starters, you've been filled by the Spirit. Verse 8. God bore witness by giving them the Holy Spirit. So they've, even the Gentiles, like the Jews, have become the dwelling place of God. Right? And you don't bring unholy things into the holy presence of God. Moreover, the Holy Spirit who is in them is also the one who commands them. Look carefully at verse 28. He says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to lay on them these requirements. So the Spirit who fills the church is also the Spirit who drives idols out of the church. 
Okay? Uh, moreover, uh, look at verse 9. We see that you've been cleansed from sin. God made no distinction, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You know what this imagery sounds like? It sounds exactly like the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, but now applied to Gentiles. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So why abstain from idols and sexual immorality? Because the true believer can't help but do so. God cleanses the idols. He gives us a new nature that wants to walk in God's ways. That wants to please our Father. That wants not what perverts, but what pleases God. Uh, And more than that, you've been called by God's name. Verse 14. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Verse 17. The Gentiles who are called by my name. This is ownership language. Okay, once we were estranged from God, we didn't know him, but in Christ we now belong to God. Believer, you don't belong to yourself, you don't belong to Satan, and you don't belong to the world any longer once you're in Christ. You belong to God. We're called by his name to live for his name. And therefore, we must abandon everything that rivals his name. And that means every form of idolatry and sexual immorality and everything that would seem to sanction them in our culture. So that's the commands. Idolatry and sexual immorality, part of the pagan culture, rooted in the gospel of grace. Now, we'll return to the way this command affects us more directly in a minute. But for now, let's move to the letter's carriers. The letter's carriers. Uh, Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them... And send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas were, we have here, they're kind of already going back to, uh, to Antioch. Why not just send the letter with them? You know, they didn't have UPS delivering the mail. They, you just found somebody who's heading in that direction where you want your letter to go and just gave it to them. Paul and Barnabas are already going. You know how long that would take to travel from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's 300 miles at a pace of 20 miles per day. That's a good pace. It's 15 days trip to get back to Antioch. Why make all the extra effort and send some of your best guys? It's going to take them a month just to get there and back. 
because they hadn't sent the other guys. Right? The false teachers that we looked at in verse 24. They had no commission from the Jerusalem authorities. These guys did. The extra effort makes it crystal clear that the Jerusalem church stood behind the gospel that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching and the inclusion of the Gentiles quite apart from the law. So we're not just going to send Paul and Barnabas back. They've been preaching this. We're going to send our own guys back to show we stand behind them. Okay? So, so they aren't minimalists when it comes to protecting the church and nurturing the church. Right? The minimalist is always looking for excuses to make things either. Why bother going? Just send the letter with Paul and Barnabas. No, they do everything they can to ensure these brothers and sisters are rightly cared for. And what's more amazing, these are Jews making concerted effort for Gentiles. (laughs) That's the gospel at work in relationships. It turns enemies into people who make sacrifices to keep each other walking closely with Christ. Our our fourth heading is the letter's consolation. The letter's consolation. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. What a remarkable response, huh? It seems rather straightforward that, you know, they would rejoice over the decisions about circumcision, keeping law. But, you know, there's a lot of freedom in in knowing that nothing in their salvation or in their sanctification depends on keeping the law of Moses. It depends wholly on Christ. But what's more remarkable is how they respond to these other four requirements. None of them are throwing up the legalism flag. Hey! Legalism. There's no feeling of those requirements becoming burdensome. Don't tell me what to do. You see, the changed heart doesn't find God's commands to be a burden, but a delight to walk in their Father's ways. They rejoice because of its encouragement, right? I hope that we can be in the same place as a church. Where we can rejoice when other brothers and sisters tell us, hey, you need to abstain from these idols over here. I've been watching your life and I'm pretty sure that by participating in this, you're sanctioning our culture's idolatry. Bro, you need to get rid of your iPhone and any other screen you use in private to feed your addictions. I hope we can rejoice in that kind of encouragement. And that leads me to close with one final heading, the letter's consequences. The letter's consequences. What does this letter mean for us? Now we can't forget that Acts is primarily about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus himself. And so when we read chapter 15, we need to see that this is his work in the church. We need to take this matter to heart. In this passage, Jesus teaches us to expose false gospels and encourage others with the true gospel. 
expose false gospels, and encourage others with the true gospel. Now, I said something similar to this last time. But we only address one kind of false gospel. The false gospel of works righteousness. But there's another false gospel. The false gospel that lacks the call to repentance. The notion that grace says we can just stay in our sins and after all, Jesus has you covered. Wrong. That's not the gospel of Christ. That's the gospel of self. Keep doing what you want to do and forgiveness makes you feel better in it. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel transforms. The true gospel commands repentance. The Gentiles here, they turned to God and now God has taken them for His name. And now they must live for His name by abstaining from idolatry and sexual immorality. Any message that enables us to keep our sinful patterns and have forgiveness too is a sham. Forgiven people renounce whatever keeps them from Christ or that would confuse others about Christ's worth. And that also means we must abstain from the idolatry and sexual immorality saturating our culture. These requirements applied to all the Gentile churches across the board. You can see it as we'll go through Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 24. We see it again in Acts 21, where they're still circulating this letter far beyond these churches. Moreover, the commands to flee sexual immorality and keep yourself from idols fill the New Testament letters. But sadly, Christians sometimes participate in society in ways that sanction the idolatry and sexual immorality pervading it. Now, I've chosen some examples. They're not exhaustive. They're just a few things that I've come across over the last few weeks. People handed me articles or or whatever. And I find them insightful. But I want to I want to mention a few of these to see if maybe we're we're discerning some of them. For example, who who would question an iconic national event like the Super Bowl? Huh? But say we paused and asked what the Super Bowl's theology of women is. In a 2013 article, Matt Voss observes that women play minor roles in most parts of the Super Bowl, and when they are featured, they're usually eroticized. And he also observes that women are depicted in ways that proclaim this world is for men, about men, and because of men. And he then illustrates this with a Super Bowl Doritos ad. A woman can't get the attention of her man while he's glued to the game. Only when she covers herself in Doritos does he find interest. And the ad teaches that women, like Doritos, are nothing but consumables. Now, Mr. Voss doesn't share these observations to disdain the sport of football itself. He simply brings them up to see if Christians are thinking when they are participating in stuff. If they're, he brings them up to ask what it teaches the world, and even more, what it teaches our daughters... 
when Christians get more excited about a Super Bowl than their prayer meetings or their time with the Lord or with sharing the gospel. And it's not just the Super Bowl and women. What does it teach others when any sporting event starts replacing, for example, the regular gathering of believers? If we're not careful, our participation can lie to the world that the game is greater than God. Or, maybe it's our devotion to entertainment. Some of us will sacrifice large amounts of time. We find ourselves barely having any time to pray and to read the Word. But we've got lots of time that we sacrifice and sleep and work responsibilities and relationships at home and time with the Lord to appease this God of entertainment. Or maybe it's the God of national security. Christians launch into lengthy arguments and debates online about national security. But when you ask the same people when the last time they shared the gospel with an unbeliever, they just shrug their shoulders. And I wonder, is this because we fear the God of security more than we fear the God of the Bible? I'm not saying we shouldn't try to walk through these issues and talk through them and really work towards solutions. But there's, all, there's a way to do it that doesn't sanction the notion that our security and our ultimate hope is in something man-made here. Or we all know that our culture is willing to sacrifice children in the womb to worship the God of convenience. It's called abortion, and it's deplorable. But at the same time, some Christians are willing to do the same thing to worship the God of their own goals. Not all artificial reproductive technologies must equally lead to this result, but many regularly compromise the sanctity of life by destroying some children to have others. Or it's also true that some, that some Christians buy into the God of careerism. Work yourself to the bone, even if it costs your family. And sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that because we can make more money for the family, then we're loving our family. Or vocational ministers, myself included, can think that as long as it's kingdom work, the family can take a back seat. And what I defined as kingdom work is really what I define as kingdom work. Not what God has told me in scripture. No, if your job or your ministry keeps you from loving your wife as Christ loved the church, if it sucks all your time so that there's none left of you for your children or others, then you've, you've elevated your career to a place it ought not to be. And elevating our career is sometimes coupled with maximizing company profits. And while maximizing profits may benefit others, sometimes doing what's honest can be financially ruinous. And so some will risk lying, fudging the truth, pushing the numbers, 
Profit or money becomes the new God steering one's life instead of justice and integrity. Or let's take sexual immorality. In the first century, it was regular just, just to visit the temple prostitutes. And, and you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul has to come to the Christians in Corinth and tell them to flee sexual immorality. Stop uniting yourself to a prostitute. Some of them had started dabbling with prostitution because they didn't understand that their body belongs to the Lord and that they were a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to glorify God in our bodies. Today's temple prostitute is pornography. And if not explicit porn, then other forms of sensual entertainment in private. Shows like Game of Thrones and the like. Just like the culture around us, men and women in the church have been dabbling with virtual prostitutes of all kinds. When you're in sin, one of the biggest lies you can tell yourself is that it doesn't affect other people. You're sacrificing your marriage and your children. You're sacrificing your church family and how you can minister effectively within it. You're sacrificing other people who are made in God's image... And you're sacrificing your own soul to worship the gods of sex and self. And other Christians fall into another kind of idolatry. One that's very subtle. Let's call this a doctrinal idol. A badge idol. Here's what I mean. Christians can sometimes rely on the rightness of their doctrinal position for a right standing with God instead of relying on God's grace alone to save them. You get the distinction? They sometimes rely on the rightness of their articulation of grace instead of relying on God's grace To save them. And when this is the case, you will know it because instead of being gentle and gracious to others, they will put themselves in the seat of the scoffer and they will scoff at everyone who disagrees with them. I owe this observation to Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. You can get a copy of that in the book note, by the way. Counterfeit gods. Brothers and sisters, I've gone through a lot of different kinds, but these things cannot be. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been cleansed from your former manner of life. Right? You've been called by the name of the risen Jesus, and He is your Lord, and you belong to Him, and He is glorious, and His beauty outshines the sun, and will fill the new heavens and the new earth, and His riches are infinite, and His presence brings the fullness of joy. Don't be duped by the world's idols. All of them lie, none of them save, and ain't a single one that will prepare you a table like this one.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul deals with this question of idolatry and sexual immorality. I'm thankful for Tyrone for helping me make this connection yesterday. We usually go to 1 Corinthians 11 for the Lord's Supper discussions. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul deals with this question of idolatry and sexual immorality. And there are some Christians who are still eating at the pagan temples. And they're doing it at the expense of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, 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 you know, they, they know that there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one true God. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. But they're destroying the church to keep the camaraderie of their pagan friends. And just what they're used to doing. And Paul says no to them. You can't keep eating at those places. Not because an idol is anything. But because what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. And not to God. And he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So when we come to this table today, we need to let it do two things for us. We need to to let it remind us of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He has washed us clean from that old manner of life. He has cleansed us from our sins. He has covered our guilt. More than that, God raised him from the dead for our justification before him. But we also need to let this table remind us of who we are now that we're in him. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been cleansed from your former manner of life. You've been called by the name of the risen Jesus. You are a new person in Christ and that means you must abstain from your old ways and bring him worship. In every moment. Ben, you want to come lead us at the Lord's Supper?